hypocritical elites, plays on words, God's faithfulness, and bizarre object lessons. It's par for the course, in Jeremiah, at least. This week on The Backdrop. Hey everybody, Curtis here, and yes, we are covering some well-worn ground here on The Backdrop this week, but in usual Jeremiah fashion, coming at it from a slightly different angle. This week we will be looking at four chapters, chapters 33 to 36, each with its own themes and stories. We'll go through an order with some quick little notes and some bigger discussions, depending on what we find there. So let's start with chapter 33, which thematically is very similar to what has come before in chapters 30 to 32. It's kind of a rehash or a summary, in some ways at least, although there are some new wrinkles as well. One thing I thought was interesting was that right off the bat, we're told that God's words come to Jeremiah while he is imprisoned in the prison courtyard. And, at least the way that John Goldengay takes the Hebrew words, verse 2 reads like this, Yahweh has said this. So far, the usual introduction that Jeremiah uses. But then, before the words of Yahweh actually begin, there is this in parentheses. Yahweh is going to do it. He's going to form it. He's going to make sure of it. Yahweh is his name. And then God's words actually begin. It's like Jeremiah has to remind himself of what is real, what is true. You know, like you might need to, too, if you had spent your whole life doing God's bidding and the result was not prestige, wealth, comfort, security, happiness, joy, respect, but was instead being imprisoned and not even inside a cell in the courtyard, outside. This reads to me like Jeremiah's that mantra almost, like Yahweh is going to do it. He's going to form it. He's going to make sure of it. Yahweh is his name. I have to remember, 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 because what I see with my eyes sure doesn't help. This is what I know to be true. I have to hold on to it. This is one of many moments in Jeremiah that I love because it so closely reflects how life actually works for us as we follow Jesus. There are great moments too, of course, but there sure are moments when it's easy to forget why we're even doing this in the first place. Jeremiah's strategy was to remind himself to repeat the truth over and over. There's nothing magic, of course, about this, but it is a strategy that lots of God's people have found to be meaningful and helpful over the years when hard times come. Moving on in chapter 33, we get verse 13 that says, Sheep will again pass under the hand of the one counting them meaning the shepherd, of course. But the shepherd was a common image dating back to the second king of Israel, David, who had been a shepherd as a boy before being chosen by God to be the king. The king was supposed to care for the people the way a shepherd cares for sheep, something that didn't happen all that often in Israel's history. But God says that there will come a day when, well, to paraphrase the New Testament, a good shepherd will arrive on the scene as opposed to all the bad shepherds that the people have had leading them all this time. In fact, Jeremiah makes this even more clear, if you know Hebrew, which I don't. I can find my way around a dictionary, that's about it. In verse 15, it says, In those days, and at that time, I will grow for David a faithful, or righteous, branch, and he will do justice and righteousness, or exercise authority and faithfulness, as Golden Gate translates it. In the country, faithful branch or righteous branch is obviously referring to a kingly figure after David's line, the family tree, the branch of David. And this branch, as opposed to the old ones, will be faithful or righteous, will be tzedek in Hebrew. You know, as in tzedekiah, 
the last king before the exile, who was most definitely not Tzedek, was not a faithful or righteous branch. Tzedekiah wasn't a faithful branch like David. The future king will be. Jesus will be. And then at the end of chapter 33, Jeremiah runs through all the covenants that God has made with the people. Verse 20 refers to the covenants about the day and the night, which is either a reference to creation, God creating order out of chaos and decreeing that day and night would be separate, or it's referring to God's words to Noah after the flood in Genesis chapter 8, verse 22. It says, all the days of the earth, seed time and harvest and cold and heat and summer and winter and day and night shall not cease. In verse 22 in this chapter of Jeremiah, God brings to mind the covenant with Abraham to make his family as many as the stars in the sky. Verse 22 says, as the heaven's army cannot be counted and the sea's sand cannot be measured, even so I will multiply the offspring of David my servant and the Levites who minister to me. And we already saw the promise to bring a righteous branch from David's line in accordance with the covenant God made with David. So what Jeremiah is doing in this chapter is to highlight God's faithfulness and reliability. He invokes all the covenants that God has made. He repeats like a mantra the reality that God will do it. God will keep God's promises. God will bring a faithful branch to shepherd Israel well. It may seem like we are imprisoned in a prison courtyard. Jeremiah is saying, but God is faithful. God is faithful. God is faithful, even so. On to chapter 34, which is taken up largely by the story of the rich people of Israel freeing their slaves, you know, like they were supposed to every seven years, but apparently hadn't ever gotten around to actually doing, and then promptly re-enslaving them again in violation of the covenant that they had just made. So this chapter is placed after chapter 33 for the purpose of contrasting the faithfulness of God to the covenants that God makes with the fickleness of the people with the covenants they make. This story happens during the final siege of Jerusalem by the armies of Babylon, a siege that we know lasted somewhere around 18 months. And in the midst of this siege, the people, and we should read the rich, the elites, because they are the ones who would have slaves in the first place, they make a covenant complete with a calf split in half like Abraham did with God in Genesis. We'll come to, back to that later. They make a covenant that they will release their slaves. Hey, great, an altruistic act in accordance with God's law. They're finally doing the right thing, except for the part where the siege lifts temporarily and then they re-enslave the slaves. So much for that. And there's a lot of interesting things going on in this story. First, let's review. In Exodus chapter 21, verses 1 to 11, in Leviticus chapter 25, verses 39 to 46, and in Deuteronomy chapter 15, verses 12 to 18, we get the relevant laws, which Meredith referenced in her sermon this weekend, about slaves. Slaves were to be held for a maximum of seven years, at which point they were to be released with seed money to start their lives as free people. We've referenced this before on the backdrop. Suffice it to say, there was not much wiggle room here on what they were supposed to do. And you can kind of see by this description that slavery in Israel was not at all similar to how it was practiced in the United States. This was, more accurately, indentured servitude. You would work for a certain period of time and then be set free. It was designed expressly for the purpose 
of helping someone who has fallen on hard times be able to start over again, while also giving their benefactor something in return, that seven years, at the most, of labor. That's the ideal, which was never actually practiced, so far as we can tell, in Israel. And while slavery is distasteful in all of its forms, and contrary to the dignity that God gives to humans, again, something we will come back to in a minute, this system, in a pre-welfare state kind of context, is an alternative to something like debtor's prison or abject poverty. At least it would have been if it had ever been practiced. But it wasn't. And so the system God had commanded as a baby step towards a more just and equitable society was just ignored. And the powerful enslaved the poor, as has been the case before and since over the whole of human history. So why the change of heart here during the siege? Well, it's possible that the people wanted to get on God's good side. Although, if that's what they're trying to go for, the language they use in verse 9 isn't really helping their case. It isn't all that similar to the language from the Torah that we referenced earlier. In fact, what God says in verse 14 is far closer to the language of the Torah laws, which is serving to highlight how far short the people have fallen in their attempt, if that's what it was going on, to get on God's good side. If that were the goal, you'd think they would have at least, I don't know, looked at what the Torah actually said before they made their covenant. At best, this is an action with an ulterior motive, trying to masquerade as following the Torah that they themselves show they aren't even marginally familiar with. It's the equivalent of Trump referencing two Corinthians and just exposing the fact that he wouldn't know the word of God if it came illustrated for him with colorful pictures. So what is actually going on here? Some wonder if this was a way of conscripting the slaves into the desperate defense of the city against Babylon. Slaves couldn't serve in the army, so they would have had to be freed first before they could be forced into the army. While this is possible, the fact that they explicitly freed both women and male slaves seems to cast some doubt on this explanation. The explanation that is the most convincing to me? Well, the slaves were owned by wealthy landowners, whose fields were being trampled by the Babylonian armies during the siege. So what use are the slaves if they can't work the fields? And then all you have are extra mouths to feed when the siege of the city is making it hard to get enough food for even your own family. So you free the slaves so that you aren't responsible for them anymore. Except, wait, the Babylonian armies are leaving. There's work to be done. Where are those slaves that I freed? I need them back again. See, the Babylonians got word that the armies of Egypt were moving north, and there was a period of time within that 18-month siege of Jerusalem, where they temporarily withdrew from the city walls so that they wouldn't be caught unaware by the Egyptians. Now, they soon returned to surrounding the city again. I wonder if the altruistic hearts of the Jerusalem elites returned as well, and then they re-freed the slaves that they had re-enslaved again. Two last points I wanted to make here. One is that the covenant that the people made to free the slaves was accompanied, as I said, with a calf cut in half. What's going on with that? The idea is that an animal, and again, you see this same thing going on in the story of Abraham making a covenant with God in Genesis, but an animal is split in half. And then the two parties making the covenant walk between the halves of the animal. Symbolically, the idea is what scholars, and only scholars, call a self-maledictory oath, 
we normal folk might say that the parties to the covenant are symbolically saying, may I become like this animal if I break this oath. I will never break this covenant because I would rather die and be split in two than go back on my word. And so in this passage, God says, okay, so you made this covenant. You said, may I be split in two like this calf if I break this oath. And then you broke the oath. So sure, the Babylonians can split you in two since that's what you want. It's another example of Jeremiah drawing a direct link between the sin of the people and the consequences that come. And finally, on this passage, it's fascinating to look at the language that is used to describe the slaves here. In verse 14, the slaves are your brother. In verse 15, they are your neighbor. Not property, not workers, not assets, family. I think this is really cool because Paul does the exact same thing in Philemon. Paul is writing the book of Philemon, this letter, to the Christian owner of a Christian runaway slave. And Paul does the exact same thing as Jeremiah's. Paul writes to Philemon and says, so Philemon, this Onesimus who ran away from you has become a Christian, you know, which means he is your brother in Christ, you know. And Paul doesn't come right out and say it. He just basically says, kind of like Jeremiah does here, huh, I wonder what you ought to do next. Should you continue to enslave your brother or, well, I'll I'll let you work that one out with God, I guess. The Bible, while never actually forbidding slavery, continually undermines the very logic of slavery. God points out in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that slavery is incompatible with following God, even as it continues to be practiced. It's one of many examples of God, for some reason, not forcing people to fall into line, but instead leaving it up to them to kind of work it out on their own. I think that's an interesting trait of God's character that shows up quite a bit. And then on to chapter 35, which Meredith covered in her sermon this week, just to recap, The ancestor of the Rechabites that are mentioned in this story is Jehonadab, who also shows up in 2 Kings chapter 10, where Jehonadab is helping Jehu to purge Israel from the ways that King Ahab and Queen Jezebel had gone over to Canaanite religious practices. This is in the time of Elijah, by the way. So the Canaanites were the ones who were settled in the land. And so if you kind of squint, you can see a plausible explanation, at least a possible one, for this bizarre behavior of Jehonadab's descendants, the Rechabites. If he said, well, acting like the Canaanites religiously was bad, so we should not act like them in any way, including being settled in the land. We didn't have these problems when we were nomads on the way from Egypt to the promised land, so let's go back to living like that. The problem is that Yes, they did have those same problems while they were nomads on the way from Egypt to the promised land. And the problem is not planting vineyards or building houses. It was worshiping Baal and Asherah instead of Yahweh. But in any event, on to chapter 36. And we've gone back in time here. In fact, if you look at chapters 33 to 36 as a whole, you start in the prison courtyard while the final siege of Jerusalem is happening. And then you gradually go back in time. 10 years back in chapter 35, and then another six years back in chapter 36. It's as if chapter 33 gives us the end of the story, and chapter 34 as well. And then the story is rewinding to explain why that end result happened in the first place. 
And this chapter gives us a doozy of a reason. Jeremiah has his scribe Baruch write down all the words that he has spoken over the years onto a scroll. And then he tells Baruch to go to the temple because Jeremiah, for obvious reasons, has been banned from entering the temple. So Baruch goes instead to read these words. Some of the powerful and influential hear the words of Jeremiah, including one member of the family we keep on meeting on the backdrop. This one is Micaiah, son of Jemariah, son of Shaphan, who we've seen before helping Jeremiah. And these influential people who hear the words of Baruch are worried. And so they arrange for it that the king will hear these words of judgment as well before it's too late. And so the scroll is taken to the king. And this is King Jehoiakim at this point. And you can just imagine the smug king leaning back while these words are read to him. It's December, so there's a fire burning. And after a few columns of Jeremiah's words are read, he simply leans forward with a knife, slices them off the scroll, and throws them in the fire to be burned. There, job done. How dangerous could these words be if I can make them disappear so easily? There's a lot that could be said about this story. But one interesting thing is that it seems either that this story is drawing an intentional contrast with the story in 2 Kings 22 of how Josiah, Jehoiakim's father, reacted when a scroll with the word of God was found and read to him, or the writer of 2 Kings 22 was drawing an intentional contrast with how this story in Jeremiah is written, because the parallels, or rather the contrasts, are uncanny. Both scrolls bring to light significant violations of the covenant, Both speak of God bringing evil upon the nation in response to these violations of the covenant. In both stories, tearing is the response of the king. It's just that Josiah tears his robes in remorse and grief, while Jehoiakim tears the scroll with God's words on it. In both, the king responds by burning something. Josiah burns the objects used to worship idols. Jehoiakim burns the scroll. In fact, the verb to burn shows up exactly five times in both stories, as if to underline this similarity. And then finally, in the way we have seen Jeremiah do so often before, in 2 Kings, Josiah heard the word of God, and so God is said to hear him. The same verb is used. In Jeremiah, Jehoiakim throws the word of God into the fire. And so in verse 30, God says that Jehoiakim's body will be thrown out into the heat of the day. There's just too many similarities here to be accidental. It's two kings, a father and a son, who are both confronted with the word of God, challenging their authority and practice. One hears and repents, one rejects. The power of the king might seem supreme in the moment, but what we see in this chapter and in the contrast with 2 Kings is that the word of God has a power that cannot be overcome by even the power of the king. King Jehoiakim throws the scroll in the fire, but God gets the last word. Not only because the judgment God says is coming does in fact come to pass, but because after the scroll burning, Baruch comes back to Jeremiah, who dictates a new scroll. This time, as verse 32, the final verse of this story tells it, with even more words like them added to it. And we will stop there for today. Thanks for listening to The Backdrop. We will be back next week with chapters 37 to 39 in Jeremiah. Join us on Zoom for church this Sunday, 9 a.m. Pacific time. Until then, we hope, especially all you Californians, stay cool. Bye. Bye.